Let me invite you to stand now and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 66. So going to bring this Isaiah series to a conclusion here in Isaiah 66. And some of you wondered if we would ever reach the finish line. And here we are, and let's finish strong. Uh, some of you wonder, does he preach anything else but Isaiah? The answer is yes. And in two weeks, we'll start a new series on the New Testament book of James. So we have that to look forward to. So Isaiah 66, and I'm going to read to you verses 12 through 16. And I really need only three words, only three words to summarize Isaiah, I'm in true Texan fashion, I am bottom lining Isaiah for you. Three words, peace, comfort, judgment. And that's what you get here at the end of Isaiah. So let's look at it together. Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 12. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. And the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse. You shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants." And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Let's pray together. Lord, this is both a terrifying passage and a very comforting one at the same time. And so help us to grasp both ends of this passage as we look at the end of Isaiah. We thank you for your providence and guiding and leading us all along the way. And so we pray, bring it to a fitting and glorifying conclusion, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Recently, I was reading a fiction book, and this was the first book in a series, and I tell you that because I wasn't sure how it was going to end. The end was a little bit in doubt, and as I read this fiction book, it turned out it was a, it was a villain versus a detective, and as the narrative of the book progressed, the villain just got worse and worse. It was terrible. And I found myself really wanting him to get his, uh, really wanting justice to be done, really wanting this detective to catch up to him. And in fact, I started wondering as I'm reading this book and I'm progressing through it, I started, hmm, I'm investing a lot of time here. This better end well. This better end well. I better not be disappointed in one of these ambiguous postmodern endings. It was the first book in the series, so I started to get concerned. Mm, is this going to carry on into another book? Because I am not. 
on that journey, this book better end well and justice and right better prevail or I'm throwing this book across the room. And so as it turned out, as I'm reading along, I, I was really tempted since the end was in doubt. I was really tempted. I noticed the book has an epilogue. Mm, I wanted to, I was tempted. I could just flip to the end and see how it ends and just make sure that I don't continue if it doesn't end the way that I wanted it to. Well, as it turns out, I resisted that temptation. It was an exciting book. And yes, the villain died a terrible death. <laughs> Rightfully so. And I tell you that because sometimes we really live in a world where it is hard to discern. You just look at the events of this week. You look out and you think, wow, you know, where is this all headed? Where are we going to be? Uh, at the end of this week, let alone six months from now or a year from now, what is going on in this world? And the end seems to be in doubt, but we can have tremendous confidence, and especially the Bible is very clear about this, and Christianity has a worldview where, let me tell you, the end is never in doubt. The end is never in doubt. And we can have tremendous hope and confidence in that fact that it all ends well, and that every wrong in this world will be made right, that every tear we have shed will be wiped away, John assures us in Revelation. Well, how do we get there? How do we get there? First, peace. This is Three themes that we see brought together so that you and I can have tremendous confidence, uh, even in tumultuous, anxious, worrisome times. First, peace. And this is in the first part of verse 12. For thus says the Lord. That's how the passage begins. And we can't skip over that because so many passages... And this is the 52nd sermon on Isaiah here. And did you notice so many of those sermon passages we looked at began or ended with, thus says the Lord. And it's meant to impress upon us the absolute confidence we can have it either in what proceeds next or what has gone before for thus says the Lord, not only can you bank on it, not only can you count on it, we can have tremendous confidence that this is how things are going to go. For thus says the Lord, and then here's some good news, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. Peace like a river. Boy, do we ever need peace these days. Personal experience of peace and then, of course, in world events, we need this peace. Behold, I will extend to her like peace like a river. Now, we're used to kind of here in the hill country, the Guadalupe River. Well, it was that. I had never seen this before. Zero cubic feet per second, this uh, flow rate this summer in the drought. So we're, we sort of read extending peace to her like a river, and we think, mm, this little Guadalupe River. That's not the image here. This is a river which inundates people, a huge river. Think the mighty Mississippi River flowing and God giving peace, stretching out peace, this life-giving peace that a river would bring life in terms of a 
abundant supply of water, so God gives peace to her people. Now, if you look, peace to her, who's the her? We go up to verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem, and we can understand that the her here is God's people. Those who know Christ, who have become God's people, are the ones who will receive this peace. So God will extend peace to her like a river. And part of what Isaiah does numerous times is speak about a city or a country as part for the whole, similar to how someone in the media might report, well, Washington thinks this. And the Washington, I, I know you don't think that, but Washington thinks this is meant to convey that this is the position of the whole country. So likewise, Jerusalem speaks for all of God's people as the central location of their existence there in the ancient world. Now God's people spread out throughout the world as the Great Commission has gone out. And we're told here, I will extend peace to her like a river. Now, I took a bunch of Hebrew classes, and every now and again it comes in handy, and this is one of those times, so I have to stop here. Because really, if you look at this word extend, it really means to stretch out. And if it were translated that way, and they didn't uh, ask me, believe it or not, they didn't ask me to translate it that way, but if it's translated stretch out, which is another way of communicating and using this Hebrew word for extend, it takes us back to chapter 9. And in chapter 9, we get a quadruple repetition of a certain phrase that uses the exact same Hebrew word that's here in Isaiah 66, 12. The word translated extend can also be translated stretched out. And that's important because if you go to Isaiah 9, four times is repeated in Isaiah 9 this phrase, it's at the end of verse 12 for the first time, Isaiah 9, 12, at the end, for all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And then you get a recounting of the sins of the people and then you get the repetition of that phrase again in Isaiah 9, 17. For all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out Still, and then the other two times this phrase is repeated is Isaiah 9.21 and Isaiah 10.4. Now, what's going on here? Well, you see at the beginning of Isaiah where God, like a prosecutor, makes his case against the guilty there in Isaiah chapter 1 through 5. You see here his hand is stretched out in anger and judgment. But what is he doing in Isaiah 66, 12, he's stretching out his hand, as it were, but he's extending or stretching out peace like a river. What happened? What happened between Isaiah 9 and 10 and Isaiah 66? Well, what happened is the Prince of Peace has come. Isaiah 9 at the end of verse 6, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He has come. And you see as well in Isaiah 53, where we're told about the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. 
We read there in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Yes, peace like a river comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because we're told in Isaiah 59, chapter 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. We've mentioned several times that God is right and just to judge sinners. And what we find here is he is extending peace to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. We have peace. In other words, the animosity between a holy God, that's how he's depicted in Isaiah 6-2, holy, 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 and sinners like us, that animosity has been dealt with through the Prince of Peace, who brought peace through the cross. And this is important for us to understand because common, a common strategy in our world is to make God less than holy and deal with the separation, in other words, by making God less than holy and by elevating humanity to try to bridge that separation that's talked about in Isaiah 59 too. But it's only bridged through the person of Jesus Christ, his cross work, the chastisement that brought us peace, God's wrath being fully satisfied in Christ, and the punishment we owed to God fell on Christ. And we have peace like a river. We are not at odds with God anymore if our life is found in Christ. And that brings us to the next summary point here for Isaiah. Not only do we have peace like a river, but as well we have comfort. And we see this in the second half of verse 12. You shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So three times the word comfort is mentioned there. And how is it coming to us? How, how do we experience this comfort except like a mother would care for their child? You shall nurse. In other words, there is a nurturing that happens here in the mother-child relationship. You shall be carried upon her hip. It's an, it's an image that the child is with the mother. And that withness, so to speak, comes to us through the Savior who is called Emmanuel, God with us. And what's being said here is that God the Father brings comfort to his people in the same way that a caring mother will nurse and carry their child upon their hip. But then look at this at the end of verse 12. And bounced upon her knees. Bounced upon her knees. It's really an image. You can kind of picture a child being bounced on the knees. I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. They're having a great time. And this is a picture of how God delights in his people. Having extended peace dealt with the animosity and the problem of sin, dealt with the separation. God offers comfort to his people, and he delights in his relationship with them. Think for a moment about how some of you, notice I said some of you, throw your child in the air. 
And the child loves it and delights in it, even though they're in a precarious position, and you better catch them. So God bounces us, as it were, on his knees in an image here of how he delights in his relationship with his people because of the cross work Christ has done. And we read, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And of course, Jerusalem, the target of the Babylonians who would come in and raise the town. But God, in advance announces the peace they would have and then it ultimately in the post-exilic time so that's a near future fulfillment god would extend peace there in uh, comfort there in jerusalem as they would repopulate the land but then it points to the new jerusalem at the same time the new jerusalem that would descend out of heaven and people would be comforted there and the effect of this comfort you shall see, your heart shall rejoice. This is verse 14. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. Think the inner parts of us flourishing because of what God has done in this comfort he brings. Now, notice it's not dependent upon circumstances. It's dependent upon the relationship we have with the Father through Jesus Christ. Your bones flourishing. And then through all this comfort and peace that he extends to us, Verse 14, the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. This is how we're going to know that God is who he says he is because we experience peace and this comfort we have in our relationship with him. You know, in, uh, several years ago in 2015, the University of Lancashire in England uh, had a puppy room to comfort students. And the way this came about the way this came about, someone had a bunch of puppies that they were training to be service animals. And they thought, I've got to socialize these puppies. I've got to socialize these puppies and get them to behave like the dogs that they are so they can be effective uh, service animals. So they had an idea and they called the student affairs director there at the university in England and and, and they got to talking, and they said, I tell you what, it's exam time. Students are stressed. They're worried. They're anxious. Bring the puppies. And they set up a, a puppy room. And you can imagine how this went over. Oh, the students loved it. Just the thought of a room full of puppies puts a smile on your face. Some of you are really smiling, thinking through the, oh, the puppies, they're so, nobody doesn't like puppies. And of course, this became a, a story, unfortunately, about how students aren't resilient, uh, which was unfortunate. But let me tell you, if we said today, oh, the, oh we got a room full of puppies in the Life Center, all of Bernie would be lined up down Ammon Road to experience this. And some of you, in ill-advised ways, you know, go out and get a puppy. Maybe that's the application from this sermon. You're going to have to take responsibility for that, not me. But I tell you that to say the, the, 
mental health aspects of this, the relief from anxiety and worry. All of us love our dogs, don't we? Uh, it was measurable there at the university, and they had data to prove it, that there were better mental health outcomes after this room full of puppies was experienced. And I tell you this because we have something better, even better than a room full of puppies that provides comfort to us. Namely, God the Father comforts us with His presence, and He gives us this peace and we're told our relationship with him should be characterized like a mother comforts, bounced upon her knees, carried, protected on her hip, nursed, in other words, uh, sustained and nurtured in our faith and in our life. This is, our, this is Christianity. This is our relationship with God the Father. Now, I tell you that because in part, because sometimes we sort of picture, we sort of picture uh, God, God the Father's the bad cop, and Jesus is the good cop. God the Father is, is the judge, and, and Jesus is the friend of sinners. And we, and we bifurcate these roles within the Trinity, and we really fall short in understanding the Trinity and having an accurate theology, because here God the Father is pictured as a caring mother, delighting, bounced upon her knees, delighting. Well, in a moment, we're going to see the judgment. Both exist perfectly in concert with each other, and we shouldn't engage in this sort of good cop, bad cop type view of who God is, and sometimes we pick up on, on this. But the Trinity, perfectly expressed in the Godhead, is a Father who is merciful, loving, just judge who nurtures us, a Savior who is loving, merciful, just judge who nurtures us and delights in us. And so my encouragement to you is, look, the world needs comfort. The world needs comfort. Uh, there are so many anxious, worried people out there. You have something better than a room full of puppies to offer them, namely a God who gives comfort to his people, who can comfort us in significant ways such that our bones are, are flourishing, and so extend that to others. Don't get pulled into these polarizing arguments that people have. Be a source of comfort to others where others are coming up to you and sharing what is difficult and hard in their life. And you respond with comfort instead of participating in whatever craziness is out there. That you would offer that comfort to others. This is, this is the last and best hope of the world is Jesus Christ. And a close second is his people offering this kind of love and comfort. So let's be careful in the way we talk with others. Let's not uh, get sucked into these conflicts and unpeaceful things that people say and do, but instead let us be a source of comfort to a, to a hurting world. That's our call as believers. So, so far, what we've seen, we're summarizing Isaiah here. 
We've talked about peace, we've talked about comfort, and of course we have to talk about judgment. Isaiah is full of judgment all over the place, and rightly so, rightly so. We made the case every time we've seen God's judgment almost that this is just and it is right that God would express it. And notice here in the middle of verse 14 in Isaiah 66, the hand of the Lord shall be shown to his servants. Part of the manifestation of the power of God, his providence, his hand, is of course in him giving peace and comfort. But as well, it's in his judgment. It's in his judgment. And we see that at the end of verse 14. He shall show his indignation against his enemies. As I was reading, as I was talking about that detective novel at the beginning, I really wanted the villain to get his. You know, if you have been wronged in significant ways in this world, you desire justice. You know, we live in postmodern times, don't we? Postmodern times. Well, what, what does that mean? That means that right and wrong are relative. If somebody hurts you significantly enough, we all go back to modern. The modern point of view, right and wrong. Postmodern point of view, right and wrong are however I define it. And so when we are wrong significantly, we all flip back into modernism. And that's important because we want, deep down, we want justice to be done. We want right to prevail. Yes, we are fallen human beings, but if you are hurt significantly enough, you suddenly have a sense and a definition of what justice looks like. And that uncovers deep within our fallenness and our sinfulness the desire for God to set things right. And so when we read at the end of verse 14, he shall show his indignation against his enemies, what we're talking about here is a God powerful enough to right wrongs, a God powerful enough to work justice. And again, if you have been, I mean, you saw this week people significantly wronged there in Israel, terrible things that Islamic terrorists do. We have a sudden sense of right and wrong and what that looks like. And it is only the most perverse uh, in this country, in this world, which can't call Islamic terrorism wrong. And we need to remember that because God's judgment will come for those perpetrators. God's judgment will perfectly come, and it is more terrifying than anything we can imagine. It's portrayed here in verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire. And part of this imagery with fire is because fire is destructive. You can't, you can't stop it. It will burn up. It will consume things. And notice here God's power, his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Verse 16, For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who are not God's people, those who have set themselves 
up as enemies of the gospel are going to be subject to this terrible judgment. And we as believers in Jesus Christ have fortunately been spared from this judgment. But the judgment is mentioned here as a motivation for people to change, as a motivation to see the terror of where their sin will lead them and to change and to modify their belief system. We want a powerful God because we live in an evil world. And in this world, we desire justice, especially when we have been wronged significantly and sinned against. And we have been spared only through Christ's humility and his sacrifice on the cross. And so we have great hope that every wrong will be righted in this world. And notice here, there's no diplomacy that will bring that about. What will bring it about is the final resolution brought about through God's just judgment at the end of the ages. And so we have tremendous hope that though we live in this confusing, violent, divided, chaotic world, God will indeed sort it all out. And he has given us along the way peace and comfort. He delights in his people that we would have the endurance to make it all the way to the end to see Christ's second advent where he comes as judge. That's the book of Isaiah. Peace, comfort, and yes, judgment for those who refuse to repent. Let's pray together. Lord, indeed, we thank you for the message of Isaiah. We thank you that the end is never in doubt, that with you, you are powerful to save even the likes of us. And so we pray that we might have tremendous confidence in what you have said, and that we might have the peace and comfort that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And having given our lives to him, we pray you would help us to transcribe your character and your comfort on this created order that others around us who don't know you might experience the comfort that's available to them partially in this life, fully in Christ, we pray. And it's in his name we pray all these things and amen.